As we come now before God's word, if you'd like to read with me, uh, we'll be again in Exodus chapter 13. We'll finish out uh, chapter 13 this morning. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you guide us now in your truth? Would you open our eyes to see by this lamp and cause us this morning to trust you more? Would you work that in us by your spirit? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is Exodus chapter 13. Um, a smaller amount of verses this morning. We'll begin in verse 17 and read here to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Ethim and the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is God's word. Now, I want to talk this morning about the Lord's guidance as we see it here. But there's another aspect of this text that I just can't quite let go by, and I, and I want to address it here at least briefly so that we don't miss it. As Israel is now leaving the land of Egypt, Pharaoh has finally said, get out. We don't want you here. The Lord has finally crushed his heart to that end. Uh, but the people are now freed. They leave then in haste, and they take with them something that might seem odd, at least to mention, which is they take human bones, the bones of great, 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 great grandpa Joseph. And uh, that would not be something that would have been on my travel list. Uh, you know, packing up your household with all your kids, you know, we have some extra food, check, you know, extra clothes, check. 
uh, grandpa's bones, check. You know, that's not something that was very common for our culture and definitely not for their culture either. This wasn't common to travel with bones in tow. But the reason why they did this is because this was part of a promise that they'd sworn to. So we know the story of of Joseph, the whole account of Joseph in Genesis, but just as brief summary, Joseph uh, and his brothers did not get along. Shocker, if you've got siblings. But uh, Joseph's brothers eventually, uh, in their uh, tiff, it got out of control, and they sell their brother Joseph into slavery, where he eventually ends up in Egypt. Things do not uh, go well for Joseph for a long time, but what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good, and the Lord sent Joseph eventually even to Pharaoh. And as Pharaoh has these dreams that he can't understand, Joseph then, by the Lord's power, interprets them, and, and they realize that they're about to have seven years of plenty, but then seven years of famine. So they begin to build up these storehouses of food. And so when the seven years of famine come, they have enough to eat, to survive. Not only in Egypt, but people come from nations all around uh, because the Lord has provided for them. So even Joseph's brothers come with all their family. And they're sustained during that season of famine. And that whole family then settles in Goshen in the land of Egypt. And Egypt then becomes their home for a very long time. And they grow old in the land. And all seems to be well. But then the book of Genesis ends with these words. This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In other words, what Joseph is saying here is, Egypt is not really home. This is not really home for us. The Lord will bring us out of this land because he's promised us to give us this other land. And so when you go to the land that he's promised, when the Lord comes and brings you out, I want you to take my bones. Too. Uh, so those bones then remained in this coffin in Egypt for 400 years until today. Until the moment where they pack up the whole coffin and haul it out with them. And so this is really then, as they're carrying out Joseph's bones, a fulfillment of two promises. It's the fulfillment that uh, Joseph, that he swore, the son swore, I guess, to Joseph that they would carry his bones out. But it's also a fulfillment that the Lord had made, the promise God had made to Abraham and his descendants to make them a great nation in the promised land. So this is not just part of their luggage. It's not just Joseph's dying wish, take my bones with you. The bones are really an important sign to the people, a reminder that God holds true to his promises, that God keeps his word. 
And it was to encourage their faith in God. Now, as interesting as that is, that they're carrying bones along with them as they head out of Egypt, that is by far not the most striking part of this scene. The most striking part of this scene is the fact that there is a phenomenal pillar going before the people as they go out of Egypt. As we read this text sort of a little bit, we get a little bit about what this looked like. We don't know exactly all of its appearance. It seems that it was some sort of immense column of fire, which was the core of it. And then around that fire was wrapped a cloud, not the smoke from the fire that just kind of goes everywhere else, but a clear column of fire, uh, which means that there weren't really two pillars, there was one. And during the day, they would see the outer cloud, and during the nighttime, the core, the fire core would glow, and they would be able to follow that pillar. So this pillar is not just a sign of God's presence. This is God's presence. That the Lord, Yahweh, is within that pillar, wrapped in cloud, wrapped in fire. So he's veiled, but he's present. This is the burning bush taken up about ten notches. And the Lord's purpose in this pillar is not mainly to protect the people. Even though we'll see in the next chapter that the pillar does stand between Israel and Egypt as they're crossing the Red Sea and does protect them in that sense. The Lord's purpose, however, in the pillar is not mainly that. His purpose is to guide them. The pillar would move to lead, and they were to follow. And this happens for months. You know, we see it spelled out over the course of their time in the wilderness. There's a description in several places. One of them is in Numbers chapter uh, 9, verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, this is now months after the scene we've read here, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony. And at evening, the clouds over the tabernacle and it was like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always the cloud covered by day, and it was the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from the tent, the people set out. And then whenever the cloud settled down, the people camped. In other words, this cloud is moving around visually, and the people were able to visually follow this guide. They, they were seeing where the Lord was, and we see the beginning of this practice all the way back here. This is the beginning of it now. For us, this obviously looks very different. I know of no one that spends their lives following around a pillar of fire and cloud. It doesn't look quite the same for us. It would be nice in some sense if we could visually see the Lord in such a way, but we can't. What is the same for us is that the Lord is still our guide. The Lord is still our guide. And so as we look at this event here, even though we can't see exactly where the Lord is as a column, we can see how the Lord guides. 
can't see where he is necessarily, but we can see how he is. We see characteristics here about his guidance so that we will know our God better, we'll know our Lord better. So in the rest of the time, I want to make here seven, ooh, more than three, seven observations. I ran out of, I ran amok this week. Seven observations about the Lord's guidance that will help us, I think, I hope, to trust him. So if you're a note taker, number seven down your page. If you're kids, even too, you can take notes. Pull out your crown, lick your pen, don't lick your pen. Uh, and, and you might have to ask mom and dad how to spell some of these things, but here we are. Seven observations about the Lord's guidance here. The first is this. The Lord's guidance is winding. The Lord's guidance is winding. There are a number of particular cities mentioned in this text that they journey through. Succoth, uh, Etham, and the next chapter has a few more, uh, Pi-Haroth, and Migdal, and Baal-Zephon. I'm sure I mispronounced all of that. Uh, these are real places, real cities, but there's debate now about where those cities actually are. We're not totally sure exactly where the cities existed. Uh, we're even not totally sure what part of the Red Sea they encountered. There's all this discussion about this. We don't really know the precise locations, and that doesn't really matter for us today. What we do know is that these locations are all over the map. There is not a direct path for them from A to B. They did not travel as the crow flies. We see this in verse, the first verse of our text, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. In other words, there was a logical route. There was a clear highway that they should have taken. That's the near route, but they didn't take it. They went by some other route. In fact, in verse 2 of the next chapter, we're told that the Lord turn, told them to turn back, that they had to backtrack on some of what they were doing. And the, they're following the pillar, but the pillar is now backtracking. So this GPS of, of the Lord's pillar is now going, you know, make, make a U-turn. Their path was winding so much so that when Pharaoh watches what the people are doing, he thinks that they're just wondering. But they're not. This is the Lord's guidance, and his guidance is winding. Which means when we encounter, you know, a famous verse like the piece in, in Proverbs, um, trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight, right? He'll make my path straight, nice and clean, A to B. No, that's not what straight means. It does not mean he'll make a nice, clean B line, a direct route. The fact that his path, our paths will be made straight is that they'll be good paths, upright paths, even if they look more like a roller coaster. The Lord's guidance is winding. That's the first. Second, the Lord's guidance is purposeful. His guidance is purposeful. Verse 17 again. When Pharaoh let the people go, he didn't lead them by the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For, God said, 
the reason why he took this on this other path for. Here's his reason now. Here's, there's some intention behind the path that he took them. It's not that the Lord, you know, forgot his map, you know, had to stop and ask for directions somewhere that's silly. It's not just that, you know, while we're here, let's take a little bit of a scenic route. You know, we're, get, we're not going to be in Egypt for a while. We might as well stop by and see a pyramid or two. He's taking them on a winding route on purpose. So if you've ever been hiking in the mountains, you know what this looks like. If you've ever been mountain hiking there, it's very common to see things called switchbacks. Are you familiar with that term? If you were to look at the hiking paths of mountains from above, there are many parts that look like zigzags. And if you're a rookie hiker, if you don't really know what you're doing, it makes sense to just like go straight through them instead of doing all the zigzags like the paths would, would do. Why not just go straight up? It's shorter that way. People who don't know any better don't realize that those switchbacks are designed intentionally. Not only do they make the path less steep so that you can climb it without getting too exhausted or without extra gear, it makes the path less dangerous. It's cutting down on the erosion. It makes the rocks less loose to go zigzag like that. In other words, the zigzag is no accident. It is that way on purpose. And the Lord's guidance is the same. That's the second. His guidance is purposeful. The third, the Lord's guidance is preventative. It's preventative. In other words, the Lord does not only take them to somewhere, the Lord is keeping them from somewhere. We can see it um, again in 17. He, does, he makes them go around the land of the Philistines, although that was near, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt, he says. The Lord took them around the long way to avoid not only the Philistine country, but the war that is likely to occur there. The Lord is preventing that for the people of Israel because the Lord knows that if the Israelites, fresh out of the land of Egypt, these now new nomadic people, if they see a threat of war, it's likely that that will tempt them to want to go back to what was comfortable they'll be tempted to want to go back to Egypt. And the Lord's right about that. We see that very inclination pop up in the next chapter that the people uh, panic and say, we should go back because the people are weak. They're just prone to temptation. They're prone to lapse back into comfortable things. That's really true for all of us. We all need the, the strength and the wisdom of the Lord to guide us. That's the reason why we pray. In fact, we pray it every week. It was sweet to hear it even this morning, especially. A part of the Lord's prayer, which is to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. We pray that regularly. And we know there's sometimes that we have to face temptation, that we still must face it. And we pray that the Lord would strengthen us when we do. But sometimes we just, if Lord, if I can't handle this, if I'm not going to be able to deal with this, please take me another way. Please take me the long way around if that's better for me. And that's what the Lord does here. 
by his grace and in his goodness, is that he prevents them from the Philistine war that they are not yet strong enough to bear. So his guidance is preventative. That's three. We're moving right along. Number four. We're about halfway there. Number four, God's guidance is unexplained. God's guidance is unexplained. It's easy as a reader to look at this and see sort of the big picture because we have the benefit of looking back. We as the reader get to hear at least part of the Lord's purpose in taking the people by this route, that he's steering them clear of the Philistines and the war there. Perhaps Moses was aware of this initially when the Lord first brought them out. He's at least aware when he writes about it. But it doesn't seem that the people are aware of God's reasoning here. We know this because the end of verse 18 says that the people went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Meaning that they were possibly armed, you know, geared up with whatever that looked like, or perhaps that they went in ranks, some sort of battle formation as they're coming out of Egypt. But this is clear military language here that in the people's minds, as they're leaving Egypt, they are ready for a fight. They are not aware that the Lord is directing them away from war at this point. They have no idea what the Lord's particular purpose is. Because the Lord often leaves his purposes unexplained. They're not told why the pillar goes where it goes. They are just told to follow the pillar where it goes. The Lord's purpose, the Lord's guidance is often unexplained. Fifth, the Lord's guidance is lengthy. Lengthy. In other words, it took some time to play out. We get the the description of the pillar here and what it looked like both in the daytime and in the nighttime, which suggests that there's multiple days passing, day and night that they're traveling before they reach the Red Sea. And so, you know, even if a few days doesn't seem like that long a time, I mean, they've been in slavery for generations, those few days was enough time for Pharaoh to change his mind, to decide he doesn't want to let the people go after all, and he's about to send an army to go try to fetch the slaves back again. So I would imagine, this is now me reading in, but I would imagine it was likely that plenty of Israelites at this point are thinking this. Why is this taking so long? You know, can we hear this along a little bit? You know, if, if the Lord had prepared better, if the Lord had some sort of clearer purpose or, or fewer backtracks, we could have been long gone by now. We should already be safely across the Red Sea here. But that isn't the Lord's timeline. And that's not his particular purpose in this. He is not concerned about what path will make the best time. Especially in a world that worships proficiency, efficiency, productivity. Sometimes we think that quicker is better. 
That's not true. The Lord's guidance is what is best, and his guidance is often lengthy. That's five. Sixth, the Lord's guidance here is tailored. Struggled with what word to put on this exactly. His guidance is tailored, like a pair of pants that fit. You know, buy them off the rack and they sometimes fit well. But if you've got tailored, ooh, yeah, they, it's fitting. His, his guidance, in other words, is fitting to this moment. His guidance is for a particular people in a particular place in a particular occasion. So the, the Israelites, we know they will eventually fight wars with the Philistines. And if you read in the book of Judges, it's all over the place. That's what Samson is doing, uh, after all, most of the time. They will fight the wars, just not now. And they even will fight wars in the wilderness, even as soon as chapter 17, but just not now. So his guidance to take them around war is fitting to right here, right now. It is tailored to the moment, which means this. The Lord's guidance is not automatically transferable. It is not automatically repeatable. You can't just look back at an instance of the Lord's guidance and say, ah, this is the formula. This is the computer program that we run things through so that the people of Israel couldn't go, oh, we've seen this situation before. This is exactly the path that we're supposed to go. We just do it again. The same for us. We can't look at this instance in the Bible and go, aha, they went this way, so we just have to repeat that and do exactly what they did and things will be fine. Maybe, maybe not. That's not to say that morality changes. But we know that circumstances change so much. And the Lord tailors his guidance as he sees best for that moment. Which is really good for us. That keeps us from trusting in the path. Just kind of repeat, turn back to the path again and again. And forces us, leads us to trust the Lord instead that each moment, each day, again, we need to keep listening to him so we depend on his wisdom that's tailored to the moment. There's the sixth. The last characteristic of his guidance is this, number seven. The Lord's guidance is fatherly. His guidance is fatherly. At the end of Moses' life, when he's finally on the edge of the promised land as the people are about to enter in, Moses reflects back on the incidents that he's seen. And as he looks at this season of life, where the people are first coming out of Egypt and into the wilderness, he sees the Lord's guidance like this. He says it in, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. Listen, Moses says this, The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. He, the Lord, 
The Lord found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness, and the Lord encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them upon its pinions, the Lord alone guided him, and no foreign god was with him. In other words, as he looks back, the Lord's guidance is not just out front of the people in the pillar of the cloud. The Lord's guidance encircled them as the apple of his eye. The Lord was tucked over them like an eagle over its young. Which means that the Lord, our guide, is not just a policeman who's got a whistle to direct traffic, go this way, go this way. He's not just an usher. Here's your seat. Here's your seat. He's not just a tour guide. Look over here, look over here. He is a father who says to his children, come this way. This is the way you should go. This is the good way. All of these things show us the character of God's guidance even if we don't always understand the path itself. And we need to see the character whose guidance more than just the path because there will be plenty of times where we'll look at the path and go, this isn't right. This just doesn't look right. This is not how this is supposed to go. But we'll have to trust him anyway. Let me close with just a very small example of how this has played out for me in my own short life. When I was a senior in college, all the conversation, senior, or a senior in high school, all the conversation surrounds around what happens next, what's going to happen for you next year. Everything revolves around that. For a lot, you know, it's, it's college. You gotta go to college, you go to college, you go to college. So what college? And for me, I had picked out one college that I was really set on. We went and visited, showed them the, you know, my portfolio and everything. And, and, and they had, it was a very expensive place, but they had 10 scholarships that they were giving away full ride, pay for the whole thing. That was the only way I was gonna have a shot at going there. And I, sitting with the, the person across the table going, what are my chances at getting this scholarship? And they said, I wouldn't worry too much. Sounds good, right? So I put all my eggs in that one basket, and of course, guess what happens? Did not get the scholarship. Which means by the last month of my senior year of high school, I had no plan and no way, nowhere to go. Uh, I ended up going to a community college and then eventually to KU, which I know is a bad word in this area. Uh, but but uh, and that, that first year was rough. I will not pretend like it was, not because it was community college, but just because everything was so confusing. Totally lost. Um, but it was the path that eventually took me to KU where I met my favorite person, who is now my wife. Uh, it's the place where I became Presbyterian. 
It's the place where I first felt the call into ministry. It's actually ultimately the reason why I've eventually come here. I can, only, I can look back now on that season that seemed so confusing at the time, and I can see the characteristics of God's guidance. It was definitely winding. It was definitely uh, unexplained. It was purposeful. It was preventative in some ways. It was also lengthy, but tailored to me, and certainly fatherly of the Lord to do that to me. I don't know what it would have looked like if the Lord had taken me down another path. I I don't even know how to imagine that. I still don't understand all of his paths then or now. But I do know that for me and for us, he is teaching us in his ways to trust him. That we would see him as a good God who guides us well. So let's follow him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know and trust that you lead us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us when that's hard or confusing or just uh, painful to trust that you are God and you do what is good for us. You are the Lord and your ways are good. So we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.